0: Welcome, you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're going to start off with a recipe for blueberry pancakes. Let's we'll start with a breakfast first. Smittenkitchen.com, Blueberry Pancakes and Pancake 101. In the Great Deposit of Food Phobias post, a few of you said that you were afraid of making pancakes, and my instant unasked for retort is that you clearly didn't grow up in my house, where I'm pretty sure that knowing when to flip a pancake was one of the first cooking tricks that I ever learned. Mom made pancakes at least a couple weekends a month and was loyal to the Joy of Cooking recipe. A page so batter, stained and grimy, I'm pretty sure the book falls open to it even when the red ribbon isn't at that page, which is never. <laughs> and though I though I promise not to judge you, please, whatever you do, don't say that schmisquick word to my mother. It upsets her. I still remember sleeping over at my friend's house and coming over and saying that her mom made pancakes for breakfast and that they were okay. <sighs> my mom says, she uses that Rhyme that words with schmisquick. Mom was ruthless, and apparently I wasn't much better. In college, my friends and I took to driving out to the 24-hour IHOP in Arlington whenever it struck our fancy. But I never ordered pancakes at IHOP because they tasted like they were from a mix. And my mother, rather than discouraging the pancake snob label my friends were giving me, beamed with pride but that's not enough about all the ways my mother poisoned me against anything but homemade things. I'd much rather take you on a tour of how easy pancakes can be. Here are 10 pancake tips. First things first. The recipe. Though I have nostalgia for the joy of cooking everyday pancakes, I particularly like Martha Stewart's best buttermilk pancakes from her original classics book. So that's what I use today. If you read between the lines you'll probably figure out that this just means I had a lot of buttermilk to use up, but honestly I do think that tang goes a long way to making pancakes better and brighter. It's an almost one bowl recipe too, utterly perfect for the simultaneous demands for homemade pancakes and having them now in a pinch, you can substitute yogurt. I mix the dry ingredients in a big bowl and I melt the butter in a little ramekin in the microwave and beat an egg into the buttermilk and mix it all together, just barely. Winker said that she's horrible at pancakes, even when I mix them from the box. Too dense, undercooked, burned, never light and fluffy. This is where the just barely mixing comes in. You want small to medium lumps in the batter. No lumps means a dense pancake. If you want your pancakes even lighter, the best way to get that is to separate the eggs mix the, the yolks in with the batter, and whip the egg whites until stiff. If you fold them gently back into the batter, this should be your very last step. Your pancakes will be unbelievably light with an extra crisp edge. That sounds really good. Once you've got your batter all ready, the next tip that I cannot underline enough is to keep the pan on the low side of medium. Cat's Pajamas says that her pancakes always burn or not cook at all. Isn't there a happy medium? like perfect? I find that two hot pans can both burn the edges and keep the insides of a pancake runny. Low to medium is the answer. Your patience will be rewarded. Once the pan is heated, I like to brush it with a very thin coat of melted butter, which is my tip for Celeste, who says that she struggles with the amount of oil when making pancakes. I've gone with too little and scraped them off the pan, and I've gone with too much and been accused of making funnel cakes. The brush, or even a spray of Pam, though you'll get less awesome flavor, gives just the right amount of oil, without them tasting fried. They're not fritters, they're breakfast, right? It's time to flip the pancake when bubbles appear on the surface. You'll see tiny ones quite soon. Once you see a whole bunch, go ahead and flip it. If some batter oozes out, and this always happens to me, lacking a griddle, I find it hard to get a clean flip because the sides of my frying pan gets in the way. Just push it back and into the pancake with your spatula. I had more than one blueberry roll out and I simply pushed them back under. Once you've flipped your pancake, it cooks much faster on the other side, just a minute or two. Because your pan won't be too hot though, it won't be too brown before the insides are cooked. Sometimes when I flip a pancake often. It tears or oozes so much that a bit of batter comes through on the cooked side. If so, once the second side is done I'll flip it back for 10 seconds or so until that excess batter gets cooked. Pancakes can absolutely be made ahead. Keep your oven 175 degrees and have a baking sheet or oven-proof plate ready and store the pancakes in there until you've got them all cooked. I wouldn't do this for more than 30 to 45 minutes. They can dry out but for a short period they'll be as good as just fried. If you want to make blueberry pancakes, and you really, really should, especially now that they're in season, though I've used frozen and they were almost as good, the best trick I've learned is from Molly of the Dry Rubbed Ribs fame, who was kind enough to make us blueberry pancakes a couple of times when I lived with her back in 1999. Keep the blueberries separate and plop them into the batter once you've poured the pancake into the pan this keeps the whole thing neater as they only touch really the pan directly on the other side mostly and that's it now I shall go scavenge the extra pancake in the fridge because writing this post has made me hungry for seconds next we're gonna have a recipe for paleo eggs Benny this one from goop.com A tip for this is don't skip rubbing the toasted bread with garlic. It it makes this dish. So there are some really good paleo breads out there, but even if you don't love it, toasting it, rubbing it with raw garlic and topping it with a poached egg and hollandaise will make it taste amazing. Please don't judge my sometimes slightly slightly broken hollandaise. It's still delicious. This serves one you're gonna need three pieces of toasted paleo bread for your or your favorite bread two cloves of garlic one thinly sliced and one whole eight ounces of spinach three thick pieces of really good bacon three eggs poached and for the ghee hollandaise you'll need one egg yolk one teaspoon of water one teaspoon of lemon juice and one cup of ghee first you're gonna cook the bacon Start in a cold pan, add the bacon, and cook over medium-high heat until crispy. Set aside on a paper towel lined plate. Remove all but about a tablespoon of the fat and set aside for future use. It's incredible for potatoes, by the way. I I can imagine that. (laughs) That sounds really good. Next, you're going to reduce the heat to medium-low and add the sliced garlic to that tablespoon of bacon fat and let cook for a minute until fragrant. Then add the spinach and cook for a minute or two just until wilted. Remove from the pan, uh, remove the pan from the heat and set aside. Next, poach your eggs. After that, make the hollandaise. You're going to melt the ghee in a small saucepan until just bubbling, then transfer to a measuring cup with a pour spout. Add the egg yolk and lemon juice to the tall narrow cup that comes with your immersion blender or any narrow cup that fits just the head of the immersion blender. This will ensure proper emulsification and blend until light yellow and fluffy. Then slowly stream in the warm ghee and keep blending until thick and creamy. No wonder I like hollandaise sauce. (laughs) Number five, toast the bread and then rub the sides with a whole clove of garlic. To assemble the eggs Benedict, you're going to lay the toast on the plate. Top each piece with some spinach, a slice of bacon, and a poached egg and drizzle generously with hollandaise. Top with flaky sea salt and freshly cracked black pepper. This was originally featured in Is It Anti-Feminist to Cook for Your Boyfriend? (laughs) Sounds like an interesting cookbook. Next recipe is from goop.com for chocolate cherry almond smoothie. Tip for this with the cacao nibs, you should top it with cacao nibs for an added crunch. Starting the day with a creamy bittersweet chocolate smoothie sure feels like a treat. Using frozen cauliflower is a nice way to sneak some veggies in first thing and we like the change up from typical greens. Plus it adds creaminess when blitzed. This serves one. You'll need one cup of water, one third cup of frozen cherries, one third cup of frozen cauliflower florets, one date, pitted, one tablespoon of almond butter, two teaspoons of raw cacao powder, one teaspoon of hemp seeds, one teaspoon of chia seeds, one teaspoon of flax seeds, one pinch of Himalayan sea salt. You're going to combine all the ingredients in a powerful blender until and blend until smooth, adding more water if necessary and needed to reach your desired consistency. This was originally featured in the annual New Year detox and goop.com is still in that annual detox. Today we are not with our <laughs> that recipe was from there, but our next recipe is for our favorite chocolate chip cookies. So, I suppose there comes to a point in every food blogger's so-called career when she posts her favorite chocolate cookie recipe. But I've avoided this point for a long time because does the internet actually need another chocolate chip cookie recipe? 130,000 times no. But the thing is, I do have a favorite. And sometimes, sometimes when you're making a heavy meal full of classics that'll i get to one by one this week, you'll want to end on a simple but not too subtle note. See this cookie has what we affectionately call a lot of chocolate to very little dough. (laughs) In fact, when you're folding all the ingredients together, it seems impossible that so many chocolate and pecan chunks will fit in so little batter, and the best part is that they barely do. Who is the crazed handsome genius who brings us this masterpiece? No not Alex, although he did bake the cookies while I washed dishes on Sunday. See how we switch it up there? Crazy. It is, and really just has to be, the famed David Leibovitz from his Great Book of Chocolate. And yeah, I was like the last person on earth to buy this, but I've made up for it by making these cookies more than twice. More than twice. You have no idea how few recipes get even one repeat performance in the Smitten Kitchen. Twice means that you need to print. Yep, it's working again. You need to print this post and go make these right now. In 30 minutes, you're going to be all house too and you'll never look back. Our favorite chocolate chip cookies from The Great Book of Chocolate. So here's my chocolate chip cookie thing. The nuts are always well toasted and they're always finely chopped as in some will be the size of a petite peas, but many will be more like powder. What this gets you is a cookie filled with all of the awesome flavor of nuts as well as the extra crunch without the nuts actually interrupting your chocolate chip experience. Nobody wants their chocolate chip experience interrupted. Half the people who try them will have no idea there are nuts in there at all, thus hushing the nut haters, but they will know that there is something undeniably better. This makes 20 cookies or more if you use one of these tiny, tiny cookie scoops. You'll need one half cup of granulated sugar, one half cup of firmly packed light brown sugar, eight tablespoons of unsalted butter, cold, cut into one half inch pieces, one large egg, one teaspoon of vanilla extract, one half teaspoon of baking soda, one and a half quarter cups of all-purpose flour, one and quarter salt, um, or I'm sorry, one quarter teaspoon salt or one half teaspoon of flaky sea salt that's the Deb option, one and a half cups of semi-sweet chocolate chips, one cup of walnuts or pecans toasted and chopped. Adjust the oven rack to the top third of the oven and preheat to 300 degrees Fahrenheit. Line three baking sheets with parchment paper. Beat the sugars and butters together until smooth and then mix in the egg, vanilla and baking soda. Stir together the flour and salt and then mix them into the batter. Mix in the chocolate chip and nuts and then scoop the cookie dough into two tablespoon balls and place eight balls spaced four inches apart on each of the baking sheets. Bake for 18 minutes or until pale golden brown and then remove from the oven and cool on a wire rack. Store at room temperature in an airtight container for up to three days. Hey Deb, didn't these cookies used to go by another name? Why, yes they did. As was explained in the original post in his book, David Leibovitz names these cookies after a now shuttered cookie shop in Ghirardelli Square who bequeathed the recipe to them. However, the name of that cookie shop is now trademarked by an apparently unrelated cookie company who sent this site a nasty gram for their unauthorized use of their brand name, which caused confusion among their customers who might wrongly believe that the recipe belonged to them and accusing the site of, quote, intentionally capitalizing on their goodwill of their trademark, Thus, the title has been updated. PS to food companies, this could be a case study in how not to get loggers to warm to your brand. (laughs) Ah, Deb. Deb is very funny. Next we have a recipe for lemon sorbet. And this looks really pretty and very light right now. It's very cold and still lemon sorbet would still taste good. Let's make it. I realize that in a week where the most public spaces part sludge part abyss, you might not have frozen desserts on your mind, but I cannot hide what we are year round ice cream people. Maybe it's just the peculiarity of a steam heated apartment, keeping it a balmy 78 degrees in here all winter. But snow on the ground has never kept us from cold treats, especially lemon sorbet, which tastes the way beams of sunlight feel on your skin. Ever since I made the impulsiest impulse purchase in the early lockdown days of a fancy ice cream maker, we've been, fairly, we've been making it fairly regularly, tweaking the recipe from David Leibovitz's Perfect Perfect Scoop from Amazon or bookshop and more you can buy it until it's exactly as full-bodied and robustly tart sweet as we like it. What sets it apart from other recipes is infusing the simple syrup with zest giving it a bigger flavor. I strain both the zest and the lemon juice pulp out ensuring that there are no papery flecks in the final sorbet. I have shoved bowls of this into several friends' hands over the last couple of weeks and I love seeing the surprise on faces from just how explosive the flavor is. Think of it like wintry lemonade. Let me make it abundantly clear that a fancy ice cream maker sits squarely on the want side of the need-want continuum. We love ours but hardly think it's a top 10 kitchen item. Ice cream makers fall into two categories. Well, three, if you consider those old-school hand-cranked, salt-chilled things. But I'm going to focus on the electric machines here. The first have bowls that you have to freeze for one to two days before using. The ice cream still needs to finish freezing in the freezer after it has churned. You can use them once and then they have to chill again for a couple of days before you make another batch. I had a standalone one from Cuisinart at one point and later the KitchenAid attachment. They work fine, but the fancier, also bigger and much heavier kind, I Impulse bought, comes with a compressor so it fully freezes into ice cream in the machine in 30 to 45 minutes and also requires no advanced planning to use or to use again. You can get it at Amazon, Bed, Bath & Beyond, Williams-Sonoba, and more. And there's links on the Smitten Kitchen website. So here's the recipe for lemon sorbet, number of servings, uh, doesn't say. Time takes about, I guess it's how big your serving is, takes about four, makes about four cups. It's adapted from the perfect scoop. David Leibovitz's original recipe calls for one cup of granulated sugar and up to one and a quarter if you like it sweeter. I use less, but make sure you taste it before churning to make sure it's not too tart for you. Freezing mutes flavors, so you'll want to taste it slightly sweeter than you'd like the final sorbet to taste if you need advice on making ice cream without a machine David also has you covered so you'll need two and a half cups of cold water divided 14 tablespoons of granulated sugar finely grated zest and juice from about six lemons in a small saucepan you're gonna combine one half cup of the water all of the sugar and the finely grated zest of your lemons heat stirring until the sugar has completely dissolved, usually right before it begins to simmer. Add remaining two cups of cold water and chill this mixture completely. I hasten this along by planting the pot unceremoniously in the snow on our terrace. It's pretty quick. Set a fine mesh strainer over a large bowl or a four cup measuring cup and juice the lemons over it until you have one cup of pulp free juice chill this too until the syrup is cold and then pour the chilled syrup through the strainer removing the zest while adding it to the lemon juice freeze mixture and an ice cream maker according to the manufacturers instructions and we've got one last recipe from Smitten Kitchen or actually this is goop.com um, spiced chickpea lentil and carrot stew with herbs and yogurt tip butternut squash or sweet potatoes will work in place of the carrots too. Good to know. This hearty stew is loosely inspired by Harira, a Moroccan stew consisting of tomatoes, harissa, spices and a mix of legumes like lentils, chickpeas, and fava beans. Our version skips the nightshades, the tomatoes and harissa, adds carrots for sweetness and goes heavy on the spices. We use a combination of chickpeas and red lentils. The red lentils cook so quickly and help thicken the broth, adding body, almost acting like a roux. The topping of coconut yogurt, cilantro, and lemon brightens up all of these deep, earthy flavors. This serves two to three, and you'll need extra virgin olive oil, one yellow onion diced, two stalks of celery diced, three cloves of garlic minced, 1 teaspoon of grated ginger, kosher salt, 1 teaspoon of ground cumin, 1 teaspoon of ground coriander, 3 quarters teaspoon turmeric, 1 half teaspoon of freshly cracked black pepper, pinch of ground cinnamon, 4 carrots cut into 1 half inch pieces, 1 quarter cup of red lentils, 1 16 ounce can of chickpeas, 3 cups of vegetable stock, cilantro, lemon wedges, and plain coconut yogurt for serving. First you're going to heat a few tablespoons of olive oil over medium heat in a saucepan or high-sided skillet. Add the onion and the celery and cook for a few minutes until they start to look translucent. Add the garlic and ginger along with a pinch of salt. Number two, after a couple of more minutes, add the spices. Cook for a few minutes, stirring occasionally until very fragrant. Add the carrots and lentils and cook for about five minutes before adding the chickpeas and the vegetable stock. Number three, turn up the heat and bring to a boil, then reduce the heat to low and let it simmer for about 30 minutes or until the lentils and carrots are tender and the stew has thickened. Number four, taste and adjust the seasoning with salt as needed. Top with cilantro, coconut yogurt, and lemon wedges. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller.